Welcome to the On Target Living Podcast, a place where health and human performance meet. Welcome to another episode of On Target Living. This is Kristen Brogan here, and I'm so excited to have Wendy Jo Peterson on today's podcast. We're going to talk about the born to eat baby feeding philosophy and just how to raise eaters that are healthy, that aren't picky, that tend to eat the spectrum of all foods. And I just want to dive in um, and share the author of the Born to Eat book is Wendy Jo Peterson. And I wanted to share just a quick bio of her. Um, I've used this book as my number one resource for feeding my son, Brady. Um, But she's an author. She's a speaker. She's a chef. She's a culinary nutritionist. She pretty much does it all. But between military moves and following her husband's career, all over the world, Wendy Jo racked up a lot of time working with children and adults across the spectrum from populations with special needs to elite athletes to even musicians. And although her passion for culinary nutrition and reaching optimal wellness through the foods we eat is what stands out the most when speaking to Wendy Jo, she has spent a lot of time in the classroom, in an office, at a hospital, behind a computer. Um, She's been on stage dishing out the latest and greatest nutrition science, and her enthusiasm regarding food as medicine is truly infectious. And just talking to her before this podcast, she truly practices what she preaches and makes food an experience and just simplifies the whole eating philosophy, which we especially love at On Target Living. But she has a master's level dietitian degree. She's been trained to really challenge the norm, search the science, and move forward with an evidence-based approach. Wendy Joe's mantra, an edible approach to a life worth tasting, which I love, goes hand in hand with her approach and beliefs about feeding her family, working with clients, and developing recipes. She savors every second helping others to slow down and savor life too. Welcome, Wendy Joe. Thank you. This is so <laughs> exciting. This is so exciting for me as a new mom to talk about your Born to Eat book and just the whole baby feeding philosophy, but also just to have you here and talk to you about all of your experience, especially when it comes to eating. Not only does Wendy have the Born to Eat book, but she also has Mediterranean Diet Cookbook for Dummies. Um, You're in the process of writing or it's coming out this fall as the Instant Pot for Dummies um, cookbook, which I'm so excited about, and then Adrenal Fatigue for Dummies. So lots of experience there, but I'm so excited to welcome you. It's such a treat to have you on our On Target Living podcast. And and let's just dive right in. Um, can you sure. explain just the Born to Eat philosophy? For those of you who don't have this book, it's titled Born to Eat, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your philosophy and the idea behind the book? So Born to Eat is basically a baby-led weaning or a self-weaning approach, but we also tag in a very anti-diet or a more mindful and intuitive eating approach, um, kind of combining some of our favorites that we've learned the most from, like Evelyn Triboli and also, too, with Jill Rapley, Jill Rapley with her book on baby led weaning. But we found that there were things that we really felt would be best pulled together in one book and one resource. And that's where we coined the, the born to eat philosophy. And so with that, it's a baby led self weaning approach. 
but it's geared towards moms and parents and family members to to feed with the family, to mm-hmm. eat with the family. We don't change foods just based on the fact that we have an infant around or with us when we're eating. And then also, too, really fostering the intuitive side. So stopping when you're full, honoring our sense of satiety and hunger. And if you tune in with infants, they're naturally gifted. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have so much skill at just recognizing I'm hungry, feed me. I am full, get the spoon away from me. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> it's really, it's fascinating, especially when you do the baby led weaning approach, um, where you allow the infant to self feed from first bite, you really get to see it and honor it. And we definitely try to open up those lenses. So parents who read the book, Born to Eat, they see this through different lenses, especially our diet culture and the American culture is so prevalent, it's sometimes hard to take off those glasses and really want to open people's eyes to the fact that you can lead your infant to an overall better eating approach for long term by using the baby led weaning or the born to eat approach. Yeah, so basically it's a whole, it's a family affair. You're not doing anything different for your infant. You're eating dinners around the table. You don't have to make a separate meal for your for your baby than than for yourself. So I love that that approach and just making the whole food an experience and starting with kind of the basics, I think is is you know, it, it, there's no such thing. I love that you say this in your book. There's no such thing as kids food. Right. We definitely don't believe in, in, uh, you know, when you look at a menu here, when you go out to eat and there's a kid's menu, it's always the same food. I think that that is what has driven parents into believing these are the foods kids want to eat. So these are the foods I'm going to feed them. Whereas Back in the day, again, this is not a new idea per se. I mean, as human beings, we would not have survived if we depended upon a blender. Exactly. Food. But we have this belief system. We have this idea. And there's honestly, there's no research ever that shows eating pureed food is actually better or advantageous for an infant. There's no research whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It was done because women went back into the workforce to support the war. And that was the reason why baby food, you know, catapulted. But if you look back years and years in cultures across the spectrum, across the world, they don't feed their infants baby food. So it's kind of comical if you travel and you have this expectation you're going to find baby food. Don't because if you go to Greece or if you go anywhere in the Mediterranean or anywhere in Europe, you're, you'll have a very tiny selection <laughs> of baked food to pick from <laughs> if that's the case, you know. Otherwise, most people just feed foods of the family. They feed the foods that they are making. They may mm-hmm. modify the texture, right? right, which is what we talk about, modifying the texture based on skill level. It's not even on age. It's really can they manipulate the food based on their skills, and that's how we advance in the born-to-eat approach. And that's, that was something that was really important to us in the differentiation between our book as well as in Jill Rapley's book is we wanted to talk about the skills and advancing mm-hmm. the skills and then how to pair the plate. That's so helpful for me, especially. And I love that you mentioned the whole purees and baby food and, 
At On Target Living, we talk a lot about the source and eating foods in their most natural state. You can't go wrong when you're eating foods closest to the source because there's always a diet, there's always a new program or a new food. And I think if we all go back to the basics and know where our food is coming from and get it as close to its natural state as possible, we can't go wrong, not only for ourselves, but also our kids. And what I love in your book is you mentioned just the definition of baby food, which I love, and it's food no longer in its natural form or texture. So we know that baby food is a form of processed food. It it takes away some of the foods you know, some of the elements of a real food. And so talk a little bit about the benefits of this born to eat approach, just from not only, you know, motor skill development, but also an intuitive eating uh, kind of a benefit, but also why maybe purees don't have as many benefits. You know, like you said, it was, they were created to help women, you know, provide a convenient and quick way to feed their kids. And it can be kind of a form of this mindless eating where we're just kind of going through the motion. So talk about just the benefits. Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about like traditional feeding. So traditional feeding meaning purees. So if you envision this, so it's typically a a caregiver, you know, dishing up a spoonful Mm -hmm. and putting it to a child's face. And then the baby eats and then sometimes the baby will turn the head and what, is a, what does a caregiver typically say? <gasps> one more. more bite. Yeah. <laughs> one more bite. Come on. You know, so you're already, you're coaching your infant to eat more. So right there is where we definitely um, change gears. We don't want someone to coach an infant to eat more, to eat past their sense of satiation. They understand their own hunger fullness. Now, it's not to say that an infant can't get distracted, right? And we talk a lot about that in the book too, is you know when your baby is distracted, you can put them down, and then when they're ready to approach the plate again, you can pick them up, and then you stop at about 30 to 45 minutes of feeding in that journey, in that time frame, to feeding them. And so that way it's all finished. But with an infant that's getting pureed foods, I find a lot of the times in our both of our observation um, that – you pass that point, you overfeed and, you know, parents want to finish the jar, right? Mm -hmm. You have these little tiny jars and you feel like, well, we opened it. We need to finish it. Um, and truthfully, if you put a spoon into an infant's mouth and then you put the spoon back into the baby jar, yes, you should throw the baby jar away after it's finished because the enzymes from the infant's mouth will actually break down the food even farther and it can't be stored safely in the refrigerator. So you want to actually separate those out. So it's, it's interesting. Some of that, um, even the food waste. Yeah. Just even from food waste side of things. Um, but just also pushing beyond an infant's sense of hunger. I also find that when you are using the traditional weaning, a lot of parents fear moving on into transitional foods and moving on into finger foods. And they there's it's like this clutch, you know, they hold on to it dearly. I mean, when I work with some families, I, I'm amazed that some people are still feeding their year and a half old pureed foods. Mm-hmm. Or the pouches or something that's easy and convenient. Yeah. And so, you know, it's that is definitely not what the intention ever was with pureed foods. Really, once you introduce pureed foods, 
in about a month, you should be transitioning anyways to finger food. So, you know, a lot of times people ask me, well, I'm already doing traditional weaning. Is your book Born to Eat still good for us? And absolutely, because (laughs) if you're doing any type of transitional feeding, as in finger foods and moving on to foods of the family, foods of the plate, then you're going to need some assistance with that. And that's the differing factor where if, so a lot of times too, traditional weaning, people give one isolated food for a week, right? That was the old belief. There's Mm -hmm. actually no evidence-based science on that either, which is fascinating to both my co-author, Leslie and I, we, we just couldn't find anything that said, yes, you had to do this yet. It's touted by some of the pediatricians. Um, but we also know, understand the level of education and nutrition they often get as Mm -hmm. well, which isn't very much. Um, we found that going ahead, if you don't have high allergy risks, meaning you don't have a family history of significant allergies, going ahead and serving mixed foods, you know, say for instance, I made spaghetti bolognese, or if I made chili, or if I made stuffed peppers, that was still appropriate for my daughter from mm-hmm. first act. We didn't take that away from her. It was what the food of the family was eating. Whereas a lot of times they, they, convince you that you need to start off with solitary isolated foods start one week and then you transition to the next mm-hmm. and then you just the next or three days or whatever it is that, that somebody's having now um there's no evidence to that there's no uh, justification really with that most infants are fine and they're not going to have any allergy states and you start to notice right away the signs and symptoms and we talk about that of allergies if that's the case so you can you can see the benefit already, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not making new food. I'm not pure. I'm not having to break out another piece of equipment or buy, <laughs> equipment, you know, uh, to create food in a different way. So, say you wanted to do baby food, and well, now you're going to have to have a blender or right. food processor or something or food masher, or rice or something to do that texture. Whereas with our approach, you don't have to. You may need to cook food a little bit longer. Like for instance. Um, one of our most popular recipes in our book is our, our pot pie recipe. Mm. And, you know, I found out the hard way about peas. I thought peas were an automatic, easy food for infants. No, well, they're, that little pea is as small as what their little tiny esophagus mm-hmm. can be. So he can get lodged in. It's a still a round food that can get lodged into the throat. So, um, we talk about mashing the pea. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can actually just mash it or cut it open and depending on if it's like a fresh or canned pea. Um, also too, you could do the same, like you can cook your carrots longer before actually doing that. Um, we divide it. So even something like a casserole, you can take and make safe for an infant of all skill levels. So whether even if it's a mixed food, yes. Even if it's a mixed food, absolutely. There's no reason not to. And actually, actually, you know, one of the things that we looked at there is some interesting research about infants who eat a lot of the isolated foods n- having a hard time with mixed foods. And so I actually recommend all the time to have, you know, prepared foods like you mm-hmm. have, you know, the chili or the, you know, whatever type of casserole dish you like. I mean, I'm, I'm from the South originally, so we love casseroles. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? No. <laughs> I mean, cozy, you know, even like something like, um, stew, be stew, mm-hmm. 
some kids have a really hard time when they've had so many isolated foods advancing to, to tolerate that. They have fear or they have anxiety around the food itself. And some kids also, because they've been fed pureed foods for so long have a very hard time advancing to raw states of food. Mm -hmm. So one of the big things that we talk about in Born to Eat is taking raw foods and making them safe to eat. So even foods that would be considered like a choking hazard, like a raw carrot, we grate with a microplane. So that way, it's not just the fact that they're, they're getting that carrot it's the fact that they're getting the taste of it in the raw form mm-hmm. so the palate is familiar with it and they can advance later on when it's time for them to have a raw carrot you know even in a I whole know form. the taste yeah exactly so that they're not um all of a sudden getting this weird vibe from the the flavors of it that's just so foreign you know it's it's all about that i mean if you get refugee families coming over from africa and you give them a blueberry, they're they're going to think this is the most horrendous thing ever mm-hmm. because that's something that hasn't crossed their palate. Mm-hmm. So we talk about how when you do foods of the family and you have a variety and variegated meals um, offered and served, whether you're going out to a restaurant or eating at home, you can advance a child's palate as well, which will benefit them long term. Exactly. And I have a lot of friends my age at 33 years old who still to this day, they don't like food mixed together. So back to the benefits, not only is it more affordable, you don't have to have all these different kitchen gadgets or, you know, room in your freezer to store everything, but it helps you to be a less picky eater and actually eat a variety of foods and get more nutrients in your diet. And I I know some of people's biggest complaints sometimes is just, it's a messy process but what I found is it's really messy at first, but then over time it, it, it gets better and better and better. So I always tell parents this. Okay, so when you first start feeding an infant, so say six months old, they're eating very little. I mean like a tablespoon to two tablespoons. Yeah, I love that you say that. Yes, not a lot. No, they're eating very little. And so, okay, so we're doing this now where they're digging in with their hands with a tablespoon to two tablespoons of food. Okay. That goes on the floor. Okay. You, no matter what, as a parent, you have to advance your child to foods. So they're either going to learn how to self-feed at six months and handle it, or they're going to do it at a year when they're eating a much greater quantity. And have more motor skills where they can throw it across the room. and <laughs> Their flinging capabilities are far better. Yes. Where I mean, at seven and a half months, my daughter could take a spoon into soup and sip it. That's amazing. Yeah, of her at seven and a half months eating soup with a spoon. That's amazing. And I love, so talk a little bit about if people are ready to start with this approach, ideally it's, it's best to start at six months, but also there's developmental signs that you talk about in your book of just feeding res- readiness. So just talk to our listeners and tell them when would be a good time to start this and maybe what foods to start on. So the big thing that we look at is the signs of readiness. And we talk about the signs of readiness in the book, you know, is your infant sitting up independently mm-hmm. and, you know, able to balance themselves because you, you want them to have neck control. And honestly, neck control is important for feeding purees or feeding solid foods. It doesn't really matter. It's it's important because if they don't have good neck control and they 
they lower their neck, they can actually get the food lodged into their esophagus. So that's why it's really important that an infant is always seated upright. And I still see parents trying to feed infants in a, like a, a car bounce, seat or yeah, or a bouncy chair mm-hmm. and things like that, where they're more reclined. That's, that's actually not a safe position. And we do really recommend sitting upright in a high chair, sitting next to them, eating with them. So that way they're watching you and learning from you as you eat. Mm -hmm. So the big thing is, are they able to sit up? The second thing is, are they ready? Meaning, are they interested? If are they putting things to their mouth? Are they reaching for your food? Are they showing signs of interest and readiness? Because if they're not showing signs of interest and readiness, they may may not just be ready. They, mm-hmm. That's just may not be part of what they want. Um, and it's okay. It's not black and white that you have to go from either five and a half months to six and a half months right. or eight and a half months. I mean, it's it's important to start especially if you have a family history of allergies to start the introduction, but you can do things like taking peanut butter onto a very thin layer onto your finger and then just swabbing the inside of their gums Mm -hmm. um, with peanut butter just to kind of get it. You can actually put it also on the nipple if you're breastfeeding Mm -hmm. and have the infant then breastfeed and then they're getting the peanut butter flavors. Uh, Yeah. And that, and also too, just the, proteins from it mm-hmm. so that way body can start to say okay I'm, I'm good with this I'm not going to develop an allergy and you can do the same thing with eggs as well so just introducing them or we're finding introducing them early is is much better for them actually showing even now if you have a high risk four to six months actually may be a more optimal window so even if you want to do baby led weaning but you want to start doing that early introduction mm-hmm. you can do that um, like I had mentioned like on the nipple or in the formula um, they have like peanut powder and things mm-hmm. like that. You can start introducing that way uh, where you can still then do the self-feeding path where the infant is actually grasping the food themselves and putting mm-hmm. it in their mouth. Oh, but the third sign of readiness too, I, I do want to mention it, is the thrust. So, it, you know, is your baby like pushing out its tongue, nom, 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 you know, pushing it out? If they're pushing it out so much, they're, they're not really going to have the food enter their mouth. And so that's their thrust. And so you really want to wait for that to stop mm-hmm. really because you want them to be able to take in the food. Um, and so that's another sign of readiness if they're not, if they haven't finished doing that. So in it's, this is also a time where I find a lot of parents figure out that their child has a tied tongue mm-hmm. um, when their their tongue doesn't really push out, and so then they're pushing out a lot of the food instead of actually taking it in. You'll see the difference. And if you feel like your child, so, you know, some kids don't sit up until they're eight months. Right. Um, if if they can sit safely in a high chair strapped in before that, that's fine. Okay. Yep. And I think my son. I want to say I started baby led weaning maybe a week before he turned six months. Only because he was so ready. He wanted everything I was doing. He was reaching for it. He was licking his lips. And then he couldn't He couldn't completely sit up on his own. For the most part, he could. He was kind of hunched over. But in his high chair, we actually found that the high chair we had didn't sit him upright or high enough. Okay. So we got a new high chair. And then he loved the whole experience. So, yeah, I love the developmental signs of readiness. And I guess if, if people do find that their kid has a tongue tie, that's some. That's a pretty easy kind easy. of fix. 
Okay, I know they can snip some of those tongue ties and, and lip ties. So so talk about just some, so say at six months, someone's starting to feed their baby this whole feeding philosophy. What are good foods to start with? I know you said they can have pretty much anything that you're already serving, whether it's mixed right. foods, but what are some really just safe foods that people can have confidence feeding their kids? Well, there's a couple things that we, we focus on with our first plate. So we look at texture, right? How is the texture of what it is you're feeding? And you've got to make sure that it's so soft where you could gently press your fingers together and it would mash. Great. Because that's like their gums and their tongue to the top of their mouth is going to be doing a lot of the mashing and the masticating. So you want to make sure that it's that soft. Um, and you can also do the sample too where you just put something on your tongue and then put it to the roof of your mouth. And if it mashes with ease, then it's a safe texture. That means the baby can, you know, munch on it and also to their, their back of their mouth, they can actually swallow it and get it down. So they don't um, necessarily need teeth. No, you don't. No, my daughter didn't even have teeth until she was nine months. Okay, yeah, my son's nine months and he doesn't have one tooth yet, and he he's gotten that the whole grasping of chewing with his gums. I, I I would say we we are fine gummers. Yes, we are. As infants, as in as also seniors, you know, you can you can gum the heck out of <laughs> yes. So um, the other thing is we look at some key nutrients. So iron is a big thing mm-hmm. that infants really need to get in. So we really do promote and push for meats early on um, because of the iron quality, the amount of bioavailability that you can actually get from that iron in the food is very important. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, um, kids, if you give an infant a steak finger, you will watch their entire face light up like, <laughs> know that their body needs this. Uh-huh. And suck all of the juices out of it clean it's incredible to watch that skill base um you know and just that their bodies knowing that they need that iron um so to serve so if someone wanted to serve me i know in your book you have different ways of preparing things the recipes are amazing in the book but they would do finger like pieces finger size like pieces and then cook it well done so it doesn't break I, off especially if an infant has like starting to get teeth and stuff, you really want to have it a, a little bit more tough, like a okay. tougher cut of yeah. meat, not tender cut, because you don't really want them to break off pieces yet. They're not quite ready for that mm-hmm. chewing mm-hmm. They will advance to that pretty quick, and then you can start doing really finite. Once they get the pincer grasp, yes. um, they, that's when you can really advance it to smaller texture, and then they can take it in. But ground beef, too, you can do ground beef fingers, where it's already, it's very tender. And I usually recommend like, you know, putting in like milk and breadcrumbs or oatmeal or something like that too, to kind of help break the meat apart. So it's not just a chunk of meat kind of thing where they take in. Um, But steak fingers, we really have found a lot of success um, with infants able to gum it and then put it down. They'll be done with it. And so that's good. And then you can... Once you see it sucked dry, you can take it away. And if, if they still seem like they want more, like if they get upset, I mean, my daughter would freak out if we took her steak away. Then I we, mean, who wouldn't? Come on. Baby's I first food, the steak, a juicy steak. Loved steak, elk, venison, whatever mm-hmm. it was that we had. 
um, she loved it. That was a big thing. So, um, so even in the ground meat form, you said, so if you did a ground meat version of say venison, you would just cook it so that they're still sucking the juices. They're not necessarily breaking it above. They can take that off. Okay. They can break that off and chew it pretty easy. Okay. So you're still serving. Yep. I, yep. We did that as well. I did that even smaller pieces though, like pinky size. Mm-hmm. That way they wouldn't get as, as much in. Um, but I, I was amazed, you know, of course, even as dietitians, we all sat on our hands. Mm-hmm. We all were like sitting on the edge of our table, like sitting on the edge of our chair as we were, you know, coaching them to chew, chew, chew. Right. You know, yes. it's nerve wracking and we get it and we understand. Um, but I will say my husband had just come back from deployment and we started this. And the first week he was just, I mean, pacing, like, just like a, like a lion. I'm oh, just yeah. pacing back and forth watching. <laughs> After three weeks, I swear to goodness, he was my greatest advocate telling everybody how great his daughter was already Oh, so eating. proud. Oh, I mean, it was such a comical switch. Mm-hmm. But it, it definitely goes to show you once you give them that trust and you give over, you know, to your fears and you just allow your infant to do what our bodies are meant to do. It's fascinating. It really is. And if you, if you, if you geek out on this, I mean, I think dietitians <laughs> and chefs geek out on this stuff, but it is so rewarding to mm-hmm. watch your child advancing these skills and it gives you a lot more confidence in them in a lot of other ways. You know, it can cross all over the spectrum when it comes to their advancing in skills. It's right. It's fascinating. So basically at six months, the finger size like pieces are good for them because they don't have that pincer grasp where they can right. actually grab things with their, you know, index finger. So doing that more so, so if you had say a sweet potato finger, it would be soft enough where they could mash it with their, with their gums. Yeah, definitely make things. And sometimes um, you can either steam it so it has more moisture to it. Mm-hmm. Some people like to do a roast steam. So say, I, I don't really love the taste of steamed sweet potatoes. That does not appeal to mm-hmm. me. So we would instead roast them. And then I would put a, like over half the pan, I would put foil over it. So mm-hmm. it would steam roast. And that steam roasting would then make it more moist and tender. chewy. Perfect. Um, so that's a good thing to do for infants. I would take the skins off a lot of the foods just because I found the skins were what would kind of create a tickle in the back of their throat and make them mm-hmm. gag more. Okay. And gagging is totally normal. I mean, all infants are going to gag. Yeah. Speak to that versus the gagging versus the choking because, and we'll get into this too, but I think like you said, you're, you're building confidence, your baby's building confidence, but also as parents you are too. So, because oh, um, I know it can be kind of a scary thing for people to watch their kids and, and hear that gagging sensation, uh, that noise. So talk about that. Yeah, I mean, infants can gag on pureed foods too. It's right. it's it's normal as the, as our gag reflex. We have a gag reflex when we are first young, right at the beginning of the of the mouth. And so, um, with spoon feeding, you bypass the gag reflex because you're putting a spoon into their mouth, and so it's bypassing it. With baby led weaning, they're actually leading the way. So they're, they're picking up the food themselves, putting it to their mouth and they're going to gag. Like they'll, you know, just have that because they're touching that gag reflex. But as they advance in skill, 
their gag reflex pushes back. Mm-hmm. And it, it happens within the first week you watch yeah. uh, their ability to not gag from something just by touching in the mouth. And that it's pretty fascinating, but a choke is where a food texture is too firm. Um, and it, they took too much in and it got lodged into their throat and they will make no sound. Um, kids do it all the time on popcorn nuts, mm-hmm. um, coins of food, like carrot coins, things that are round. The peas and early on. Yeah. I mean, that's why the reason why I recommend like anything that's round, even a blueberry, things mm-hmm. like that. Unless they're so, so soft, like, I mean, fresh from the vine, soft, like they're going to mash. Um, I don't really recommend, but most grocery stores, you know, they don't get them they get them when they're a little bit harder, right. so they're not that soft. Yeah. So you want to make sure. I like the freezing. If you um, get frozen fruit, mm-hmm. when you defrost it, it's really soft in texture. So like um, strawberries, they they just basically fall right apart. Well, that's a great texture for an infant. Perfect. Okay. No. Um, but you know, a gag in a in a choke, it's good to get on YouTube and watch the difference. Take mm-hmm. take. Definitely take a CPR class. Anytime you work with infants, you should understand how to do CPR yep. with an infant, no matter what. I mean, because you don't want to. I know a lot of people have the the reaction to bang on their kid's back, which is a no no. Yeah, or they want to sweep the mm-hmm. mouth, and that's a no no. Because when you sweep a mouth with with food in it, you your finger has a greater likelihood of lodging food into their throat mm-hmm. than they did. Yep, exactly. So. You'll watch if they're making noise, let them work through it. Don't be tempted to put your finger in their mouth. Let them work through it. And I, I will tell you, they are good at working through it, especially if it's the right texture. One of the big things that I find, though, parents put too much food on a plate. Mm-hmm. So you, it's overwhelming to the child in general to have too much food on their plate. But it also can create, for some kids, their hand sco- scoopers. And scoop it up and put it in their mouth because they, they so want to eat, right? For for kids that are like that, I often recommend that they breastfeed before. Mm-hmm. Or so they're not eat. starving when they're going to eat. Because a famished child is a, the same as a famished adult. You know, they just mm-hmm. start in the food. And so you want to stop that. So give them a little bit of food in their stomach first so they can work on the skill. Mm-hmm. And, and limit the amount that's on their plate. If they want more, yeah, I love teaching the sign more. Yes, those are great. And if they want more, then you can put more on their plate if that's something that they're reaching for and grabbing for. But you want to let them guide that, not you guide it. So if they haven't asked for more, don't put more on the plate. There's no reason to. Because then, yeah, they're just overwhelmed and then they're picking yeah. up probably more than they need. And okay. And I found. So the gagging thing, and I with my son, even just soft foods that I knew he could handle, even when it came to a banana early on, he was gagging it, and then he just eventually spit it out. And really good at um, they'll they'll work it around the mouth, and they'll get a lot. You'll be surprised how much of the nutrients are actually going to get from mm-hmm. that just from oral, you know, being in their oral the juices, cups. and yes, and then they'll kind of work it, and then they spit it out. That's normal progression. That is. normal advancement good yeah and I think my son was just he was just a wild eater so I would make all these finger like size pieces and he'd so say it was a sweet potato well either it was too and I you know it's it's trial and error so you're experiencing 
you're, you're experimenting and everything just like we would ourselves. But I would find that if it was too soft, he couldn't pick it up. And early on, sometimes I would just hold it and he'd grab it from me. So that was helpful. But if it was too soft, he couldn't pick it up. And if it was too hard, then I was scared about the choking. But there was times where it was the right texture and he'd grab the finger like size piece, but then he'd rip it apart and it'd get into a choking size piece. And I wasn't, and part of me was like, dude, you're not doing this whole thing right. Not that there's a right way, but it would make me nervous. So while I was seeing all these other babies grab the finger like piece and just kind of suck a gnaw on it like like they were supposed to, he wasn't doing any of that. And there was a point where he was gagging so much that I got really nervous and, and I stopped doing it for a little bit. There are certain things that I, um, I, I preferred to serve in more of a mashed texture. Mm-hmm. Like if I, if we made bacon, I chop that stuff up. Yes. I, there was no way I'd give her a big piece of bacon because she'd gag on it every time. Right. Uh, eggs, boiled eggs. For a long time, she really, she did better with egg salad texture. Mm-hmm. And would just sit with yogurt. Yep. She would in the whole form. Um, and so it was different than what I served on my plate, but it was okay. It, you know, you, you make it, you make do with what you're recognizing as a parent of your own child. And I, I def, this is where I think, you know, when you go so black and white with how this is supposed yes. to be kind of silly because every infant is so different. They advance differently. Um, and I have definitely seen my fair share of swoop scoopers, you know, the, uh-huh. and oh, little boys <laughs> yeah it's, that's what I'm thinking it's it's the boys I think that are just so wild yeah they'll just put the whole thing in their mouth uh-huh. and it's like okay let's maybe like put like one piece of food on their plate yeah. at yeah. a time yeah that's yeah. probably helpful too so, so I guess for parents do what you're comfortable with because I went through maybe a few days where I was just I, I wasn't as a dietitian I, I know all about food and I should be confident with it but it scared me so much, it's my first kid, that I went back to more things that I was comfortable with. So even with the sweet potatoes, I started making them with a little coconut milk in there, and he was loving it. He was still scooping up with his hands, but now, nine months, he still doesn't have any teeth, but he can handle things more. So I think just doing things that you're comfortable with and understanding that it's not a black and white kind of thing, and and playing around with the textures. I did a lot of fritters too. So I would do um, like squash if we were serving because my daughter started eating in the fall. So squashes and pumpkins like that. So I would do, um, I made like a pumpkin bread and she did really great with pumpkin bread fingers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I would make um, squash or like like butternut squash fritters. And she did great with the butternut squash fritters just because I could make them in finger forms or pancakes, I would do a lot of the finger pancakes and things like that. She did great with those types of textures. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's, at about a year, she stopped eating anything that was kind of bread-like. Interesting. She didn't like bread-like products until probably this summer. Until so she it, had your homemade sourdough bread. <laughs> well, I mean, we lived in Germany. So we lived in Europe, and we had amazing breads. Mm-hmm. But she would take a bite and totally then wasn't her big thing. And she, she has eaten a sandwich now, which she never really would eat a sandwich. She likes lettuce and mustard sandwiches. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> hey, they, they dictate mustard. what they like. Yes. 
<laughs> so and when kids kind of get a little bit older and I found, so starting with the finger like pieces and then maybe around eight months, I started to do more bite sized pieces because he could actually grasp onto things. Is that okay then to have peas? They can and be very yeah. small. Okay. So they can be very, very small. And then as they advance and they get teeth and they get their molars, their back teeth, you'll definitely, you can advance the skills because that's when they're, they can actually masticate better. But I still recommend not overwhelming them by putting too much on a plate. I, I just, I think that's one of our big issues, um, with overfeeding, you know, just put too much on a plate and then it encourages one food waste. And then you're trying to encourage a child to eat more than they necessarily need. I mean, infants, their tummies are still very tiny. Yeah, and I think what helped me too is the whole philosophy of food before one is just for fun. I mean, there's, yeah, some iron like you talked about and some nutrients, zinc and vitamin D and omega-3s that they need, but also they need such small quantities of those nutrients and such small quantities of food because breast milk or formula, that is their their number one nutrition until they're one. So food before one, just for fun, that that's what really helped me. So there wasn't so much pressure on both of us, but what would you say as far as if you are maybe around eight months, what is that ideal size once they have that grasp? If they don't have teeth. Yeah. So we break it down in one day. We give ideas of like one to two tablespoons of certain foods paired together. So when you're building a better plate, how to pair it properly. So we talk about high fat foods, high iron, high vitamin A, vitamin C, because those are helpful for the iron absorption. Um, but the, definitely high fat foods. So like, a, you know, one to two avocado wedges, um, is a great start, you know, doing <laughs> some type of nut butters, things that are, and of course, nut butters are a choking hazard if they're given it like in a spoon type setting. So you don't want to give an infant a spoon of peanut butter because that can lodge into their mouth and block their breathing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say like, you, you want to think about it in the sense of you have a very, very tiny hole. What can go in that hole? Like a marble, the size of a marble. Okay. If it can, if it is the size of a marble, then it could, if it's not soft, it could block their airway. So you want to keep things smaller than that until they advance and they can learn how to chew. I mean, my daughter could eat an apple at a year. Wow. She didn't okay. Just- that, that's yeah. helpful to know. So just smaller than their airway. So think smaller than a marble, especially if they can pick it up and put it in their mouth. I mean, we, we have a thing where it's like the tube of um, toilet paper tube mm-hmm. and seeing if, if things can go into it, you know, keeping things off the floor that are smaller than that. Yep. Um, because that's, you know, they'll just put that right into their mouth and that's not a good thing. No matter what, I mean, whether it's a food source or not food source, some kids just put everything in their mouth. Yeah. Okay. So even though if they're chewing bigger pieces, ideally it's those smaller pieces of, of soft food that you want to give them. And Wendy Jo has a great diagram in her book of how to pair certain. So I love the whole building the the baby plate. So she shows you that you always want to pair high iron slash protein foods plus high energy foods plus fruit and veggies. So that's kind of what to think about. So just give us an example of what that would look like. So kind of going back to that first plate, you know, a steak finger, an avocado finger, and maybe like a a desegmented orange wedge. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Yeah. So what, speak to the orange. I, I struggle with that, like a clementine. Like that would be a choking hazard, but you could just. With skin. Okay. Skins are, so I, I actually, I broke it down, I think in one of our videos on Born to Eat with um, cutting off and then desegmenting the you know, the fancy way of, of cutting an orange yes. or fruit um, where it doesn't have the skin on it okay. Or, okay. or the pith or anything around it that would be considered a gagging. Otherwise, citrus is great because it has those little pustules and they'll yes. all break apart really fine. Okay. Canned okay. Um, mandarins can be great, but I oftentimes they're not – unless they're just canned in water, I don't really like them because they, they've been starting to put a lot of the um, artificial sweeteners mm -hmm. in which they don't need to, but yes, you just want to be careful. And that's a big thing too with infants. Um, you know, they just, even though you like your oatmeal with sugar in it, they don't need it. They, they will eat it and love it and enjoy it without it. They legitimately do not need to have any sugar in it. And it's crazy though, how many people have this mindset like, well, I can't eat it that way. But you you could. Mm -hmm. You did mm -hmm. that way before. You know, we weren't sugar. born craving unhealthy foods. We were born starting on the basic bananas, avocados, sweet potatoes, squash, carrots. So yeah, yeah bitter, I love making that. bitter stuff and not really have the same their their taste buds on their tongues are changing and evolving. And right around two years old, when everybody says, Oh my gosh, my child was such a great eater and now they're not well, guess what happened? Their taste buds really started to develop. And from a safety standpoint, two-year-olds at that point, evolutionary-wise, were starting to branch out and go off on their own. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. if they were to eat something bitter, they knew to spit it out. Why? Because plants that are out in the wild that are bitter typically are poisonous, mm -hmm. not the sweet plants. Those aren't going to be the ones that are going to be ridden with poison. Interesting. So that yeah. was like a safety thing for the body to do that. So we, you know, we always say it's it's very normal for a two year old to really start changing their palate mm -hmm. um, and what they want to eat and what they don't want to eat. Again, what we put in front of them is still really important. You know, the whole Ellen Satter division of responsibility. But and we talk about that a lot in the book too. But you know, I knew if. I, we didn't shy away from things that had sugar in it, but we just, I also adjusted any sugar that were in my recipes just because for the well-being of my whole family. Well, yeah, no one needs it. There's, there's plenty of foods that are so flavorful without the sugar. And I think even when it comes to toddlers and infants, just because you give them something and they make a face or you know, or they spit it out oh. and discuss, it doesn't mean they don't like it. It's just about introducing it so they can really establish all these different tastes, right? So that one of the big things that it definitely drives me nuts when people say, and I see this all the time, when people say, "Oh, my baby doesn't like this." Mm -hmm. Okay, your baby hasn't had it enough to establish, and they haven't verbalized, they haven't developed an opinion on a food. It is a brand new texture. It is a brand new flavor palette. They're still figuring it out. So oftentimes, if you just keep your mouth quiet and just eyes open, ears aware, and watch them and observe them, you'll see them go for it, make a face, and then oftentimes they'll go right back in for mm -hmm. more, right? Yeah. They're just figuring it out. And so we influence flavor preference constantly. 
And it's you'll see it even more when your child starts school because then they're picking it up from other kids at school because they'll say things that you're like, oh, and TV shows is really terrible too. Like um, some of the I'm I'm really really we don't have a television so I'm anything that we watch video wise I always scan through because mm-hmm. a lot of times that's where they're going to pick up some of those right. behaviors nuances. Um, but I remember one time, and this, I love my sister, but she hates mushrooms. I love mushrooms. I love them. And she cheered when her daughter, she's like, oh, no, she doesn't like them. She just, she did not want her daughter to like mushrooms because oh. she didn't. And I think that's so comical and silly because there's a lot of great nutrients in our fellow fungi right. that we love. Um, and so, you know, yes. It may seem cutesy and fun to have a child you think doesn't like the foods that, you know, you don't like. But the truth of it is, try to squash saying things like that because it is important for them. You do want them to grow up in a world where they have an open mind to foods and different foods. I mean, we live in a global world where we're traveling more now than we ever did before. Well, now Mm -hmm. imagine your child 20 years from now how much more travel they're going to have and be exposed to. Right. Uh, you want them to be able to go and travel and try different foods and not be the having to pour in their, in their bag because they can't eat anything beyond their, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Well, yeah, and there's a whole social element to that. I recently went to a cooking class where someone in the, the group, yeah, couldn't eat mushrooms. There was something the whole meal was planned around this food and one person in the audience couldn't have it. And it threw off the experience for everyone. And I think sometimes I work, we do a lot of speaking events to to adults and there's a lot of older gentlemen who will come up to me and say, okay, you know, I like your cookbook, but I I just hate Brussels sprouts. Or I hate vegetables, they'll say. I hate vegetables. Yeah. And then my response is, are you five years old? I mean, how do you hate them? Have you, have you prepared them differently? Well, I tried them once when I was, you know, five and I've hated them ever since. So it, it's just, we have to keep introducing these flavors and, you know, we weren't born loving beer or coffee. I, mean, I always tell, that is one of my favorite lines when I do a talk, as I always say, how many times did you drink beer? Right. Or you forced yourself to like beer? Yeah. Cause or- because I guarantee the first time you put it to your lips, it was not something that went down easy. No, and it's a lot of the times these foods are bitter, like you said. So we're, you know, we're designed to not like some of these things. So I think just introducing it more and when it comes to feeding your kids, being the role model, it starts with you. And I love this in your book. I wrote this quote down. Family meals model for our children how to eat, how to behave at the table, and how to try new foods. So just speak to that and speak to just the whole dieting philosophy. I know we have so much information out there and very little education. And even when a parent follows a diet, that impacts their kids. I. I remember growing up and my mom always following like the Pritikin or I, I always remember not really understanding when she was on the diet, but I always knew she was on a diet when she started serving lamb. <laughs> when I said she would serve lamb and it was like, she's on a diet again, you know? Uh-huh, so, yep. And although I don't remember my mom ever, um, 
she let us eat however we wanted. She never, I mean, I could sit in, in front of a sugar bowl and she wouldn't have criticized me or mm-hmm. anything. So I, I didn't grow up with the, I didn't grow up with the idea and the need to be on a diet. That yeah. was never my, and I'm definitely more of the culinary side. So I love all foods. Eat whatever you want as long as it's homemade kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I definitely, I'm very selective on the foods I choose to eat uh-huh. uh, based on quality. Right. It, the quality is way more important to me, but you know, we live right now in a society where it's hard to get away from this diet mindset and this toxic diet mindset. And they, you know, just a study just came out where third is it? No, seven to 10 year olds now have exponential growth in eating disorders. So we're creating this and more women die from eating disorders annually than from breast cancer. Oh my goodness. When you think about it that way, it should hit you hard. Mm-hmm. When you set your child up for listening to this, you know, diatribe back and forth, back and forth about, oh, I have to earn this food or I need to run after I eat this. You're setting your child up to feel like if they eat something, they have to go do an activity and that they don't just get to eat it to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So constantly thinking that they need to go run instead of actually sitting down and eating their food, that's a scary thought. And we're right. seeing three-year-olds in our country now have eating disorders. Horrible. And I remember one time we were out to eat and my girl, my girlfriend's little girl said to me, do you think I'm skinny enough? She was <sighs> She was five. Five. We have got to monitor the language we use mm-hmm. around our children, around food, not only for ourselves, but for their future. Because every person that you talk to who's had struggles with disordered eating or eating disorders, it stemmed from what was created at home. Wow. That is a huge slap in our face, the amount of impact. Um, and you can either take it in one of two ways. You can, you know, kiss it off and just keep going with the same type of dialogue that everybody else around us has, or you can really be sharp and choose to remove those types of food, food talks and food language around food and instead focus on enjoying. And, you know, one of my, my first book that I ever wrote was the Mediterranean diet cookbook for dummies. And my best friend is Italian. Her her mom, I sat and studied under her when I was developing the bulk of these recipes. And I spent a long time in Italy and throughout the Mediterranean area. In no way, shape, or form do you hear people over there in their long, gregarious meals, mm-hmm. they're counting calories, dissecting the food, and talking about it in a in a way that's shameful or that they need to earn it. Um, instead, you hear everybody talking about like the lemon in the food and the flavors and oh, just enjoying and savoring every bite in the company that they're sharing. Yeah, with. and having a social experience. Yes, it's it's crazy the difference. Um, even so, I mean, I, I witnessed it even in, all throughout Europe as well. That you know, they, I remember the, that book that came out, um, "Why the French Aren't Fat" or mm-hmm. something like. Yep. Um, 
And of course, I don't like that title and I, I don't like the whole skinny mantra and beliefs yeah. like that. But it's, it is interesting when you travel over there, you do see a big difference. And I look at the big difference as the kids there eat. Nobody's nitpicking their foods. Nobody is shaming them about mm-hmm. eating chocolate, eating breads or um, – and the parents aren't sitting there talking about their need to right. eat this and Counting that. Counting macros or – No. Yeah. Not at all. And it's, nothing's off limits. That's the nice thing. And nothing's superior than the other. So when people say, okay, well, finish this and then you can have dessert, then kids start to rate – these foods, you know, or they think, okay, dessert is superior than my vegetables. When really, I mean, they're going to develop a palate for all these foods. And I always say the more you eat certain foods, the more you crave it. Like after a long, especially after a long travel, I crave greens or I crave healthy foods. And I think people that are eating processed foods, the more they're going to crave processed foods. Yeah. It's, I, I, people are always laugh because when they come over, I make a lot of homemade cookies and I make homemade breads. Mm-hmm. And but if you were to watch my daughter approach those foods, it's fascinating because she is not. She'll have a bite and then she can walk away. It's not something that she knows she's never going to get. Exactly. It, it's a common food in our home. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She's not going to get shamed for not eating the whole thing and. She eats to what she is full. And she'll even say, my tummy's comfortable. I'm done. I'm finished. Um, or they, Unlike adults, sometimes they know what it should feel like to be, you know, satisfied. That We do recommend, you know, creating that dialogue early on. Don't underestimate a child's knowledge base to, to understand and comprehend those, mm-hmm. those t- topics and words. You know, start speaking to them about hunger fullness. Is your body still hungry? Mm-hmm. What is your tummy telling you? You know, and so and my daughter now knows like if her tummy doesn't feel good, that most likely she has to go to the bathroom. Right. And she'll say, I need to check in with my tummy. And she'll you know, I love like, that little like face. And like, you could tell she's like tuning in and then she'll say, I have to go potty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's, your body's always talking to you. So that's, I mean, she's aware of what she's feeling and and this is from your book too. Only in recent decades have we become, we began overthinking and overprocessing our foods, which has led to chronic dieting, chronic disease, epic confusion about the best way to feed ourselves and our families. And and you also they say there's no such thing as a kid food, which we talked about. And we're not saying that people who've used baby food did something wrong. It's just there's a whole nother way to think about this whole thing. And baby foods can definitely have their place. I mean, we definitely don't shame moms who who need to do that again, we just talk about the fact that we need to advance no matter what. Yep. You've got to advance from baby food no matter what. And really at a year, an infant should not be eating baby foods. They should not be eating pureed foods. Yeah. And I think with, so my son's in daycare and I of course wasn't going to tell them you need to do this whole philosophy way of eating because they aren't comfortable with that. There's a million other kids that they have to watch. So I started to have him do purees at daycare. I was doing the whole born to eat philosophy at home and that was great, 
But then they were starting purees at daycare, which I felt like was perfectly acceptable because if I didn't have him doing those purees, he would miss out on the whole social element of the eating experience at daycare. So while his little friends, I know he's young, but his little friends would be eating at the table, he would be off in the corner if he wasn't eating those foods. And even just recently, they said, has he, he hadn't had yogurt yet. And, um, They said, well, we are starting to do yogurt as a snack. So if he hasn't had yogurt yet or you don't want to give him yogurt, he's not going to be able to have snack with his other friends. Well, I, of course, don't want that. So now, luckily, he's nine months and they have a preschool at the same center. So they're taking all the the foods that the caterers bring in for the preschoolers and they actually break it into smaller pieces and they give it to to the babies now that they're older. So it pretty much is the whole baby lead weaning um, philosophy, which is nice. That's good. That's good. So I think a mixture is is okay to do. And um, so as far as, you know, just motivating your kids, obviously you don't want to say finish your whole plate. What are some of the, I know you talk about this, but what are some of the things you can do to support them? Like choo-choo-choo or? Yeah, I mean, I, I the best way to support them is to eat with them. You know, okay. a lot of times people say, Oh, well, you know, it's not, we're not going to eat at that time. Well, you should yeah, or eat a snack <laughs> or something. Adjust your sales. Like, because this is a very short period in their life. And yes, one year of doing this type of thing for them is, isn't, is important. They're right. learning the right. most from you. Um, you know, speech development, everything. And they're watching you chew the food. They're watching you enjoy the food. So sit down with them and share the same meal. Um, you know, I, I would serve dinner for breakfast and breakfast for dinner. Mm-hmm. The reason was my daughter was most alert in the morning. That was her most like yep. brush-eyed, bushy-tailed, skill-ready time. And so we would do the, we would tackle the more technical foods at that time. And we just adjusted it. I mean, my husband would eat, we would eat a later dinner together and she was already asleep. And so then we would, I would share that with her for breakfast Mm -hmm. and then we'd do like a four o'clock, basically we'd swap and I would do breakfast type foods at four o'clock for her. Yep. Um, And then if she wanted, as she progressed and advanced, if she wanted to, if she was up, um, then she could eat again with us. Like if, if that was the case, but it just always depended on that. So, I mean, you can, you have to make it your own. I mean, we found that. So my son will go to bed at six 30. So my husband and I will eat after that when he goes to bed, but we'll still, I'll still be there when he's eating, when he gets home from daycare around five and I'll have a snack or some of the food that he's having. But then I serve him the leftovers from our dinner the next day. So, and you know, there's times where he wants everything. He wants to eat everything in sight. And other times he doesn't even touch it, but it's, I'm creating that consistent schedule. Yep. So I'm so, she was so tired from all the learning and everything mm -hmm. that she was exhausted at night. And so it was never a time for her to do it a skill. And so I would make sure that when she was the most alert was when we would serve the more technical foods. Um, and you, you kind of figure that out, what, what they're, what type of child they are. My daughter still wakes up early and still goes to bed at six 30. So, you know, she's a, she's a six 30 in the morning girl. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that is her morning hours are her greatest amount of time for eating. And still to this day, dinner is probably the least 
amount of interesting time for her to eat. Yep. And she knows when she's hungry and she knows when she's full. And and what about, so being a chef and this whole feeding philosophy, what do you feel about salt for babies? Because I know there's people that say you can't salt your foods and babies can't handle it. So what is your approach? I mean, if I could adjust it on certain foods, I would adjust it. But I didn't worry. We didn't worry about salt. They eat so little. Right. Eat a diet high in processed foods. She wasn't eating crackers and she wasn't eating chips and she wasn't eating things where I had to really worry because, you know, 85% of our diet comes, the salt from our diet comes from processed foods. It's not even coming from the table salt. Yes. So, you know, things like our casseroles and things like that, I would salt them just like I normally would. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if my husband wanted more, he would put it on at the table and I would never adjust hers. And she's, it's no big deal. She can pick up something though when it is too salty for her really quick. Like um, we were out somewhere and it was like a soup or something and she wouldn't touch it. She was like, it's too salty. And she's really good now. Like she can actually say, she'll walk into my kitchen and she'll say, Mmm, mama, what are you making with garlic? Wow, that's so impressive. She's in tune with her, the flavor, so I would do a lot of sensory activities with her, Mm -hmm. um, with cinnamon and oregano, and we, I garden a ton, and so she would taste fresh herbs, and it's funny, like, she'll walk right up to my, we do a hydroponic, um, she'll walk right up to my hydroponic stand and eat kale right off of the, like, literally just, (laughs) Teeth open, chomp right on the- A dietitian's daughter, of course. Yep. And they don't know any different. And I think you're you're the role model and they learn to like these foods. And, and even when they're dining out, I mean, you can still do this whole philosophy oh, when yeah. dining out. Right away, she ate Mexican food. Um, you know, and their foods can be saltier, but she, she ate, she loves beans to this day. She still loves beans. Um, so she had beans, the rice was a little bit spicier for her than she wanted. And she definitely could tell she wanted water <laughs> right away. But I mean, she had Mexican food at seven months. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I, mean, I think my son Brady's favorite food is. She had shrimp there and I hit all the high allergens right away, like yeah. within the first month. Great. Um, and so she did, you know, she had shrimp frequently. She had shrimp. Um, and some other seafood, things like that, just to kind of get that ready out of her system, you know, but, um, it, you know, it's crazy, you know, if you just relax about more things, you'd probably have a greater enjoyment in sharing the meal and sharing the plate with your child than not. Yeah. And I found there was a while there when I did get a little scared about some of these harder foods or then I started doing, actually, I love that you're doing an Instapot cookbook because I did refried beans, black beans or pinto beans in the Instapot. And then I'd serve it with like some chunks of avocado and then some scrambled eggs. And that whole combination, like even it's kind of like a Mexican type of dish was his favorite and he loved it. So just different ways of kind of introducing and and, you know, ethnic foods can definitely fit even curry. I would put cu- cumin on a lot of things just for iron. And so I love that. So what yeah. would a lot of Indian food? Mm, yep. And just, yeah, starting at a young age, I think is really powerful. Yeah. So what do you feel about um, using spoons or certain certain dishware? Now, I'm finding that 
because we've been doing this approach to eating, he won't let me spoon feed him, which I guess is the whole point of this. Um, what do you feel about them using foods? Do you think it's better for them to use their hands or what do you, how do, how do you feel? I served a spoon from day one. So we use the num nums. Yep. Um, I would spoon it up for her and then put it on the plate in a spoon form. So then she had, she always ate from her plate um, and I would put it on the plate and we use those easy peasy plates and then she could pick it up and that way she would eat it. Um, and so then I would serve herself with that spoon. Yep. And I would advance silverware. We used regular silverware, but they're her size, but metal silverware mm-hmm. at about nine months because oh, it was right, right in Germany. And so at nine months, she really advanced. Um, and I it's still to this day, she gets a butter knife um, at her plate. She, she knows how to use her butter knife. So we advanced very fast with her. Um, and I would say at a year, she was consistently using silverware. Awesome. There's times that she likes to use her fingers. Like last night she was eating rice and still ate with her fingers. Um, she wants a full we, experience. I know. We can make it a big deal or we can make it not a big deal. Um, we did remind her that she does have a fork and she's quite capable of using her fork or spoon should she choose. Um, but we don't make the table a battlefield, so yeah. we let it go. So I find that some kids, the more they're introduced to it and they're watching you use it, the more curious they're going to get. So introduce it early. Don't wait yes. to introduce silverware. Um, introduce it early. You okay. can help spoon it up. But like I said, at seven and a half months, my daughter could eat soup from a spoon. Nice. On her own. She could dip and spoon it up. And we have really good video of her doing such a thing. So kids get good at it. And then when they know that they want to pick up more, they use their hands because their hands are skilled. I mean, mm-hmm. um, but I definitely, you know, we're, I'm a big like cloth napkin. We always use Chinaware. Like yeah. we always, we don't save, reserve the stuff for the for special meals. We we eat that way every night, and we eat Great. that way every meal. Um, so, but I'm with my daughter, you know, most days yeah. too. So she gets that full throttle experience. So, and this is this is one of my biggest kind of struggles with my whole experience of the baby led weaning philosophy. Is so now I have um, my parents who are upset that they can't feed my son by the spoon because my mom's like, I love feeding babies and I love doing the airplane room, you know, with the spoon. So how would you speak to that? Because that's the whole point is you want them to feed themselves. Yeah, you know, I always say instead focus on other ways that you can share a meal with them Mm -hmm. by describing the food to them. Tell them what they're eating. Show them that you enjoy the food. So that way you can get that same type of warm, fuzzy feeling by seeing their excitement about the food that you're excited about. Okay, I love that. And I think sometimes you probably have to surround yourself with people that can support this philosophy fee because, (coughs) excuse me, I'm also getting... We have a letter in the book, too, to help people with caregivers who uh, question this. I mean, I had an uncle who was just, like, adamant my daughter was just going to choke. I mean, yeah. he was – and he would, he made no – he didn't mince his words about it. Um, but then later on, he came to me and said that out of all the children he's ever eaten, he is the most impressed with her palate today. And, and then, sometimes you don't see those benefits until down the road. And so that's what I'm getting with, with people that don't know this philosophy is there's a lot of judgment and it also 
questions my ability. So I went on family vacation and my mom just couldn't handle the gagging sound. She just couldn't do it. She couldn't be in the room. And then, you know, then I have my brother saying, well, he doesn't have any teeth. How do you expect him to eat? And all these things that I read and I believed in and I was confident about just kind of went out the window. And that's where I mentioned where I got scared for a little while there. And so I think you have to surround yourself with the right people and you have to be confident. And I guess the the letter in your book is pretty powerful. But what would you tell people as far as, you know, they say they have parents who are questioning this philosophy? You know, there's a lot of good evidence-based science that's out there now supporting baby-led weaning. Um, there are, the Bliss study is great. Um, that's out of New Zealand. That's a good study to kind of give a parent who really is more critical or analytical. But also remind people that people have been eating this way for thousands. <laughs> that we used to never have any electricity to blend foods. Right. So this isn't new. This isn't a new concept. Um, but we also recognize that we don't have the healthiest of society. And those of us who are experts in the field have really looked at what are ways that we can create and foster more in tune and intuitive eaters to be more mindful and, you know, to really help mitigate some of these less savory behaviors. And we find that it starts with baby's first bite. I think that is powerful because obviously we don't have a good reputation when it comes to food in our society. Everyone's on a diet. We spend a lot of money on the weight loss industry. We clearly know that it doesn't work because we have so many issues. So I think if we can raise our kids from that first bite, like you you talk about, just to be good eaters, because yeah, we're all born to eat. We have this innate ability to want to nourish our bodies and and, and kids, it's more fun. They, they can develop, you know, preference to texture and temperature and all these things that you don't always get with the puree. So I think what's, what's helped us too is I've, my son, you know, their behaviors change all the time. So sometimes he'll be super into eating and other times not. And then he's going through developmental leaps. I find that if I'm not watching him, his every move and just giving him space. So yes, last night I made pumpkin mac and cheese and, he's been kind of funny with certain textures, like picking it up in his hand because he hasn't felt certain things. And right. so I saw him pick up a noodle and just with disgust throw it back on the on the plate. And then I just, I just kept a couple noodles in front of him and it had the pumpkin kind of sauce over top. And eventually he just picked it up, brought it to his mouth. So he had to play with it and he didn't want me watching over him either. You know, sometimes yeah. it's, it's better if you're not, you have to keep an eye on them, but you have to give them space to experiment because no one, we don't want someone staring at us while we eat. And yeah. then introducing it more, we, I come from a big Lebanese family, so I gave him a grape leaf the oh, other yeah. day. Yeah. And it's just, and it was more for him just to gnaw and it was kind of for picture purposes. But um, at first he wanted nothing to do with it. Didn't even bring it up to his mouth. Next night, introduced it. He took a huge little bite out of it. And it was it was just ground. It was rice and soft foods and stuff. But it just goes to show you can't just you can't be discouraged from that first bite. You just have to keep keep going. Yeah. And they don't need chicken nuggets. Like, no. You don't have to feed them chicken nuggets. Like my daughter definitely was eating the full vast variety. Although tabbouleh, just FYI, if you haven't done tabbouleh yet, don't. 
it's very messy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's certain things that selfishly we don't want to clean up. Our house. Yep. Yep. And in yep. your book, I know you have some tips on like having a food mat under the, the high chair and just different kind of things. I mean, I, I have- find... Yeah, it's going to get a little messy. I have a little bassy in my shower, so I just bring them in there and I hose them off. Other times I just get a rag and wipe them down. He wants to eat the rag most of the time. But yeah, yogurt was really the messiest thing for us. Like we did peanut butter and yogurt. And that was probably the messiest thing in spaghetti and chili and things like that. But um, we did. We just learned we live we live in San Diego. So uh, she would eat a lot of foods naked. Mm-hmm. And then we would close her down and it was no big deal. And I didn't really even do a lot of, um, as she progressed, I really didn't do a lot of bibs because I, I, she got neater and neater um, as she got older because she wasn't doing the pureed foods. So she wasn't doing messier food. She was mm-hmm. using, so whole foods are actually not as messy. Right. Oh, I so. love that. Yeah. Get them naked. I think that's the easiest part. And I don't do bibs a lot because it gets in the way, I find. And when I strap it around his neck, he gets all upset. And then the whole eating experience is ruined. And so it's just a little bit yeah. easier. So I love that. And I think I think this will give people just a lot of good takeaways for feeding their kids all the way up through as the time they get older. Because, I mean, as adults, we don't want to be picky eaters. We want to eat in a way that's intuitive and mindful and making sure that we like a lot of foods that our body needs. So thank you so much for just sharing your insights. Your book has changed our life. I have your book right in front of me and it's dog-eared and I have highlights all over it. And it's just a really great resource I can always go back to. So it basically just starts with with making food an experience and feeding your kids what you're eating and not thinking so much about it, right? Right, not overthinking it. Yep, and just making the whole process really simple. So tell our listeners where they can find you or learn more about you. So you can find more about our book at borntoeatbook.com. And we have social channels. So we're on Instagram and Facebook and on Pinterest, which we have a lot of um, plates pinned on Pinterest for those who want to see that. Although we're not we're, we're moms and we're so busy. We're not doing a ton of the social media stuff like some people do. And so there's a lot of other really good social media channels to follow when it comes to uh, consistent baby led weaning posting. But um, you can also look me up at my Instagram is just underscore Wendy Joe or just Wendy I have stepped away a bit from blogging like I used to just because I write more books now and you just don't have time for all of it when you're a mom. You can't do it all. <laughs> no, you definitely can. And I, I definitely, much like how I approach the plate, I approach life. And it's it's got to be about balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> I try to balance the social side of things, the social media side, which can be all-encompassing, with being mostly important thing as being a better family member, an active family role member in my family. So yeah. So, but you can, I'm always, I always post on, on just underscore Wendy Joe on Instagram. Okay. I post regularly on that things that my daughter's doing or I'm making or preparing or whatever. And then we post on born to eat more geared towards the born to eat book. Fantastic. Yeah. You have a lot of great resources. I found the books to be super helpful for me. I do use social media, but sometimes there's so much 
happening, it gets a little overwhelming. So I like the book because I can keep it in one spot. I can flag it. I can highlight it. And it's just a good resource. So make um, sure. Yeah. They pick up what we throw down. So if we're on social media and hand, we're on our handheld a lot, mm-hmm. they see that even as an infant, yep, they start exactly. to pick that up. And so I tried really hard to stay off of my phone until my daughter went to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still try to as well. Um, if I'm on my computer, she knows I'm writing. So it's, it's less. <laughs> but if you're reading a book, then that's a good being a go- good role model too. So it's all it all kind of blends together. And and I think the big takeaway is regardless of whatever kind of program you're following, it has to be sustainable and it has to be enjoyable. Even when it comes to baby foods, not that that's the total wrong way. We're just saying that there's a whole nother way to it. It's not going to be sustainable or something you do long term. No one's going to live on baby foods, you know, forever. So just think about whatever eating philosophy that you're taking a stance on. It has to be sustainable and you have to really enjoy the whole process, enjoy the adventure, making an experience, make mistakes. For those of you out there who may have lost, I I had a woman um, that I know recently, she just had a baby and she said, I read every single book on baby led weaning. I read the born to eat. I read all these things. I started following all these moms on Instagram, super confident. Then I had my own kid and all went out the window because reading it and doing it is totally different, but I think we have to surround ourselves with the right people and we just have to kind of make it our own as well. For sure. And do what's right for you and your family. And that's what's most important. Exactly. So be a role model. Um, Born to eat philosophy is the complete opposite of what dieting is all about. So there's nothing that's off limits. It just goes back to foods in their most natural state. We talk a lot about the source on target living. So this all kind of um, fits together into our message, but we hope you got some really good information. And thank you, Wendy Joe, so much for coming on here. This was such a special treat for me because I'm a huge fan. So we, we, we got a celebrity dietitian on our podcast, but um, you guys go follow her, pick up the book and um, cheers to healthy eating. Cheers to healthy eating.